Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked is, is there any sacrifice? Now, I'm going to shoot out dirty love. 
Guys, welcome to Conspiranormal, and we're here. But Mr. Luke is back, uh-huh. and Mr. Rob, yo yo, <laughs> and uh, we're especially in the old studio tonight, as uh, everybody will hear. Like our maybe our it's either going to be the previous show or the next show. We're not too sure at the moment, but uh, some things may be out of order. But we had a odd thing happen, so we're uh, trying to get the the new studio back up and running. But uh, we're back in the old one now. But uh, on the line. I have a very special guest, and you guys may have heard a recording that I put right before the show of something from the Bent Waters UFO incident, the also known as the Rendlesham Forest incident. And I have someone that is an expert, has written not one, but I believe three books about the event, and that is Mr. Peter Robbins, author of uh, Left at Eastgate. Welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Thank you. I'm glad to be on, and I am the co-author of that book, along with Larry Warren, but do have two other books to my credit on the subject. Yes, and we will, I want to talk a little bit about your, your latest book a little later on. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to talk about, first, your experiences, how you kind of became involved in the whole subject of UFOs, oh, like sure. what kind of led you into that? Yeah, um, well, that's a great question to start with. Um, I... I had absolutely no interest in this subject growing up, um, and I'm old enough to, um, you know, really be a child of a more innocent time. I, I uh, was born in New York City, and I came of age uh, in a, a very lovely little village about 30 miles east of Manhattan on Long Island. I have to describe my childhood as very happy. And um, everything changed in a way uh when I was 14 years old, but the memory was pushed so far back that it was not for another 14 or so years that um, the memory returned and my life changed on it. The event itself was a, uh, a UFO sighting, but a, um, an extraordinarily clear, uh, unambiguous daylight sighting uh, on a beautiful, cloudless, late morning, uh, that I had with my sister, Helen. Um, we were just goofing around on the front lawn as kids do. It was, uh, as I recall, early June, and just one of those times in village life where absolutely nothing was going on. There was no one around, no other kids, no ice cream truck, no mailman, nothing. And we were just hanging out on the front lawn, and I caught something out of my right peripheral vision and immediately called Helen's attention to it. And we watched in total amazement as five silvery white, completely disc-shaped objects. The way that we saw them, they were not round, but they were elliptical, like if you take a dinner plate and hold it in front of you at a slight angle, uh, more ovoid. And they were in a very precise V, as in Victor, formation. Uh, There were five of them. They were silvery white. Um, The best we could do in putting it together years later was they weren't like stainless steel. They were more like brushed aluminum. They weren't shiny. And we could make out regular detailing around the edge of each. 
that was toward the yellow, and it only read to me like windows on a commercial aircraft at an appreciable distance. Okay. And I'll tell you guys, I, I, at 14 years old, I was still in the Boy Scouts. I mean, I, I was like Leave it to Beaver, if you've ever seen that wonderfully ancient show. <laughs> right, right. Um, I come, what year was this event? It was in the early 60s. Okay. And I, um, I was a reader. I was a short kid with glasses. I was the nerdiest nerd in Nerdville. I collected <laughs> rocks and bugs and stamps and dreamt of faraway places and camping out and um, just a very innocent childhood. Um I knew about flying saucers from the B-movies that I would occasionally right. see on a Saturday morning. But in reflecting back on this, I guess the implied message of the adult world that these things aren't real, except in those movies and as a fantasy, um, nothing had prepared me for this. And I went through a reaction that I will never forget now. Um, that I have since documented, I'm sure, more than a hundred times in interviews that I've done with UFO witnesses over the decades. I call it the checklist reaction. And it's simply that you're minding your own business, you look up and you see a thing or things, and your mind immediately goes. That's not, they're not planes, kites, blimps, blutes, um, uh, 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 dirigibles, helicopters, yeah. birds flotsam and jetsam in the air, reflection from the ground, crowds. What in the name of God am I looking at? And it probably takes like 10 seconds. Yeah, pretty much. Process. Yeah. Um, my sister and I didn't say a word to each other throughout this. Um, we experienced it very, very differently. Helen was just 12 years old, still on the cusp of childhood. I was already a raging mass of hormones, just hoping that God would let me get my hands on a girl at some point in the future and have cooler clothes and grow a foot taller and have nicer hair and, you know, all the usual adolescent stuff. Right. But I'm only half joking. I, I, I really felt that if I told anybody about this, the, the innate understanding of the ridicule that would be involved, um, that I'd never have a girlfriend in my life. I mean, these were the thoughts that were going through my mind. I'd just be an outcast and a crazy person. And it was so uh, overwhelming that um, later that afternoon when Helen said, do you want to talk about this? I said no. And it was more than 14 years later that this memory came roaring back into my life like a hurricane in about 15 minutes. And my life literally changed around it. I, I thought I must be going crazy or having a breakdown or something. I, I don't think that that term repressed memory syndrome was commonly in language at that time, certainly not for lay people. And I simply couldn't understand how something like this could happen and that I could have actually made myself forget it. But indeed, that is what happened. And um, I, after pulling myself together, I called my sister and I was very careful not to say... I've just remembered this and tell her what this was. I asked her if it was a good time to speak, told her that uh, I had remembered something from childhood and I needed to know if she remembered the same thing or something different and that I didn't want to just say it because then she'd say yes or no and I'd never know for sure. 
So I set the scene, told her what the weather was like, where we were standing, time of year, and she just stopped me mid-sentence and she said, uh, and she told me what I remembered with one tiny parameter difference that we figured out with the drawing the next day. But then she told me something that totally changed my life. She said, but there's more. Um, You passed out. You went down and I went up. Now, this was in the mid-70s, and there was bloody little, except for, you know, if you were into the subject, which I was anything but, about, say, Betty and Barney Hill uh, as the the first brilliantly documented uh, absolute abduction case that we are aware of, or one of the first. Uh, I think at that time, Betty Barney Hill and Travis Walton, I mean, that would probably have been it. Well, interestingly, Travis's um, event hadn't happened. Um, okay. Travis's so this happened, is before '75. Yeah, it ha- exactly. This was in the earlier '60s, and um, Betty and Barney's had happened in '61, I think. So we were close on it. But um, my life changed. Um, I my first profession was as a painter. Uh, I, I studied at the School of Visual Arts. I taught there for years. All I wanted to do from childhood on was be an artist in New York City. And I was living my dream by my late 20s and doing just that. And it derailed it. Um, I continued to paint and draw and teach and show my work, but the heart had gone out of it. I was playing at it for a number of years and ultimately set it aside, although I never put down my camera. It's continued to be my creative expression always. But um, I began to look into this subject, and it obsessed me. I don't know to the degree it still does. Um, I have a lot of other interests in life, and am well-traveled and culturally oriented, but what happened to my sister and other people um, that have been through the same thing drove me, uh, has driven me for decades, and I ended up Shortly after we had this discussion, meeting another New York painter who had just gotten involved in this subject, also very seriously, we became friends, and five years later he published his first book, a book called Missing Time. His name was Bud Hopkins, and we lost Bud about four years ago to cancer. But Yeah, I was about to ask you about that, Peter. Yeah. I was about to ask you whether you had met him through the, the art world, because I knew he was an artist. Well, it's, it's the damnedest thing. Um I, I knew his work ever so slightly, although it was terribly different than mine. Uh, Bud was more than 15 years older than me, and he was sort of a late abstract expressionist painter. I was a minimalist, uh, and our, our friendship became a very good friendship. But I met him because um, about a year into my obsession, I was walking by a newsstand in New York, and I did a double take because... Um, a weekly that uh, is still around, The Village Voice, which at the time was more than anything, a very leftist kind of bohemian publication, had this major article on a big UFO case on the cover by this guy named Bud Hopkins. And I thought, uh, I bought the paper, I read it, and it was the best written uh, UFO case report I had read in my limited experience. And I went to the New York City phone book and I found there was only one Bud Hopkins, he spelled it with two D's, and I cold called him and introduced myself, and we had coffee a few days later in his kitchen and talked about Art Life and UFOs, which uh, was the title of his uh, 
final book, a memoir called Art, Life, and UFOs that's really quite special that came out in 2008. And little did I know that was the first of hundreds of conversations we'd have at that kitchen table over the next 35 years. And I worked as Bud's assistant um, for about half of that time on and off. And as some of your listeners know, uh, Bud, besides being one of the most respected people in the history of UFO studies, was really the father of scientific uh, research into the so-called abduction phenomenon. So I was very fortunate in, in having him as a mentor and a teacher, as well as several others. But that is the long answer to your short question. Okay, excellent. But let's get into Rendlesham Forest, mm-hmm. uh, the the Bentwaters incident. Yeah, uh, you know, just you kind of like describe what happened there in uh, nineteen eighty, like December of nineteen eighty. Sure. And also, how does uh, Larry Warren? How does he come into the picture there? Yes, um, the so-called Rendlesham Forest incident of uh, nineteen eighty occurred over three consecutive nights between Christmas and New Year's. Suffolk, for those that aren't familiar with um, UK real estate, is about 70 or 80 miles northeast of London. It's about a two-hour drive. And the incident itself is actually a series of events that occurred separately over those three nights. Um, It began with uh, observation by a... Law in for an Air Force law enforcement cop stationed at RAF Bentwaters of a light going down into the Rendlesham Forest. Now, while it didn't seem to be a crash, there was no ground concussion, no explosion, no fire. This comes at a very tense moment in the Cold War, as you know from reading uh, Left of East Gate now. Um, and he radioed in, and he and a um, Uh, a security police sergeant were driven into the area by uh, another security cop who went as far as he could on the path. And then John Burroughs, the the airman um, uh, law enforcement cop, and Jim Penniston, the sergeant, walked into an area of the forest where they were confronted by a machine of undetermined origin that was hovering um, at about chest height, there are lots of depictions of it over the years in various UFO documentaries and television shows, but it tapered to a triangle. It had the appearance, the surface has been described as kind of black glass-ish. There were markings on it, symbols, hieroglyphics, whatever you want to call them, and um, they had missing time. The memories are uh, fragmented, But there is no question in any of our minds that what they confronted was a very real machine. Uh, The next day they were able to document and measure depressions in the ground, triangulated. It seemed to have sat on kind of a triangular landing apparatus, for lack of a better term, uh, with slight elevated beta and gamma radiation readings uh, in the depressions. And that kind of kicked it off. Um, UFOs were seen in the area over those three nights. On the second night, um, again, UFOs were seen over the area. And the only female 
involved directly in the story as a witness, a sergeant named Bonnie Tamplin, was sitting in the cab of a military pickup truck, and it was a very temperate um, December, not very cold. The window was apparently rolled down, and a light, um, I guess for some people they describe it as an orb that seems to be uh, a name that's given to some of these um, anomalous phenomena, came into the cab of her truck. And it was so upsetting to her that um, hmm. she was relieved of duty. Uh, I don't know if she left the service at that point, but she had a mental episode. The third night, um, the three major things that happened were unknowns, UFOs, were seen over the weapons storage area, beaming beams of light down into it. Now, under normal circumstances, if you have a powerful flashlight or a laser and you're out at night and you shine it from point A to point B, you see, you know, the light where you shine it, but you don't see a line. You know, that's for cartoons, unless the air is so moisture charged, you know, like a foggy night, that all those billions of droplets catch that light. And those beams were seen coming down into the weapons storage area. And that is a euphemism for nuclear weapons storage area, right. where we did have nuclear ordnance at a time when we were not allowed to, by virtue of our treaty with Great Britain, um, releasing that information um, did not make us very popular with the Ministry of Defense or the Air Force or the Department of Defense, but it was true and has been redocumented a number of times since then. Are you saying the United States violated a treaty? I I hope you guys were sitting down for that, as well as all of your listeners. It is the only time this has ever happened. Just ask any Native American. Yeah, right. right. Um, later that evening, um, and concurrent with it, in fact, the deputy base commander, Charles I. Halt, uh, a lieutenant colonel at the time, uh, was in the forest with, I think, six personnel to investigate on their own, and a UFO flew slowly over their heads and shone a beam of light very close to where they were standing. And later that night, and now we're at the third night, um, my co-author, Larry Warren, who was a security specialist, um, security police officer in, in the Air Force, I don't know how it is in other military branches, I'm guessing the same to a degree anyway, you have law enforcement cops who are the equivalent of our civilian police officers and the security specialists right. or the security cops who are, to be blunt, the trained killers. They are the ones who will kill you if you try to repel, you know, uh, enter that border without permission or, you know, it's a serious, serious job. He yes. and other cops were called out to a farmer's field um, set within the Rendlesham Forest, where they were ordered to surround a self-illuminated ground fog. And the event built up, ultimately with the appearance of a different and a larger craft, again, for lack of a better term, uh, than the one that Penniston and Burroughs observed on the first night, and ultimately the appearance of three beings, and it was a standoff. These men had been disarmed. 
when they got to the area, their weapons were collected, which is a good thing, I think, in retrospect. And um, the event went on into the night. Um, many of the men involved do not remember how they got back to base that night. Um, missing time seems to be a part of this. And then, well, that's more than enough for most people. But the next night, something really dark happened, um, which was a number of the men involved, including Larry Warren, uh, the man who was standing next to him, Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, other men were first debriefed with um, what I would call disinformation, which is not a lie. Disinformation is a very skillful, intentional mix of truth, confabulation, fiction to produce a certain result. In this sense, I think it was to just put the fear of God into these young men and hope, you know, tell them to get on with their lives and not to look into this. And um, the next night, uh, that night, the night after, um, Larry, Adrian, other men, and it followed with Penniston and Burroughs in another way, and different witnesses were subdued chemically. Uh, were taken against their will to a facility where they were put through God knows what, but they still bear the scars, physical and physiologic and, and psychological, of what happened to them and these unconscionable things that were done to confuse them, uh, destabilize them, however you want to characterize it. And the event, the events were hushed up extremely well by the Air Force and the Ministry of Defense, uh, there are always leaks, but this part of England, Suffolk, is an area steeped in lore and myth and legend, not that a lot of parts of England aren't, um, and it just became part of the local background color until, following his honorable discharge from the United States Air Force, my co-author, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, enraged about what had happened to him and the other men he was with, uh, obsessed with this subject, but mostly because of who he was. Um, the term whistleblower is bandied about in our culture as sort of a yeah. pop culture term, and you used it before in a very real way. But these people are not like most of us. They really will put principle so far ahead of practicality that it may cost them their lives, their peace of mind, um, the stability of... of you know, their careers, family, marriages go under. But within a week of this event happening, Larry was still a teenager. He was 19 years old. He was a highly trained military specialist. He was. But yeah. he decided that this had to come out. And in doing so, I think he showed tremendous courage and a certain amount of naivete because Larry was... 54 years old last month. He has been standing tall on this for 35 years, being wow. attacked repeatedly from all directions. It has cost him more than can be imagined. He is um, a great guy, uh, I think an absolute American hero, who has been treated awfully over the years by skeptics, debunkers, people within the UFO research community. Uh, he is tough. He is no nonsense. He's been an expatriate for 15 years. He's been a resident of Liverpool, England. 
um, working with him on our book, which I thought would take a year or two, maybe cost a couple of thousand dollars, bring us to England. Took us nine years to write. Um, at our own expense over those nine years, we returned to the UK separately and together about 14 or 15 times. We spent everything that we had, hawk things that we had, um, got a bad deal with an American publisher. The book didn't do great here, but it was a smash bestseller in the UK, and it really did change the way that people think about this subject. And I was so shaken by things that happened to us our first week when we visited there for the first time in February 1988. I was ready to jump out of the project. <laughs> I kind of quietly swore to myself, as you will read soon, um, that if I ever returned to England, which was in doubt, I would never come within 50 miles of this part of England. I was so freaked out about it. But life is funny, and obsession is funny, too. Uh, my anxiety was replaced by a very, um, um, a very positive kind of anger. I, I still am enraged about what was done to these guys and what it cost them, and what we, our government, well, it's such a generalization, but elements within our government and other governments will do to keep uncomfortable truths from coming forward. Um, I'll be heading back to England and back to Suffolk in December for honestly about the 25th time. Well, And it's become like a second home to me. I, I have people that are like family there for me. And I, I am compelled to return to the areas where these events took place repeatedly and probably always will be for the rest of my life. I, I've worked on a lot of cases over the years, but this one will always have my attention. Well, let me ask you, Peter. Uh, first of all, the um, the halt recording, what night was that? That was the third night. Um, okay. Charles so that's Paul, the same night that Larry Warren was That's right. Was there. But okay. it was um, most certainly earlier in the evening. Okay. And um, as that transpired, um, remember, these things all happen between Christmas and New Year's. And it's a military base, and, you know, officers live off base uh, as a rule, but not always. And there was a round of parties going on over those period of time, and Charles Hall, deputy base commander, was at a party on the third night when Lieutenant Bruce England came up to him and simply said they're back. Halt had been a skeptic from the first night, but was very curious, went back to his residence, changed, got into field clothing, called together a team, pulled together the equipment they'd need, night scope, etc., and they headed out into the woods. Um, and I've had people say to me, do you think there's anything about that recording, which many of us are familiar with clips of, because, again, it has been used um, as a, uh, um, a device in many radio shows, uh, television shows, documentaries. Uh, yeah, I actually heard a song that actually, like a like an electronic yeah. song, yeah. an electronic song that, that, that sampled it. Yeah. yeah. There's a musical written about Rendlesham um, uh, that, that happened about, a dozen years ago in Suffolk, um, Chrissy Hines' great pretender song, um, Tell Me the Meaning, um, from the 80s, uh, is a song about these events. There are other songs about it. It has hmm. become, there are several non-fiction, several fiction yeah, books based on it, etc., a number of films. 
But it's very much in popular culture. It is. Know? It is now, and there's good reason for that. Um, first, as far as Colonel Holt's take goes, my absolute 100% feeling is that it is 100% authentic. Um, all of the men who were with him are identified. Their voices come through at times. It's absolutely real. There's no question about it. However, in terms of the event itself, it was absolutely dwarfed by what happened later that night to Warren and the men that he was with. Right. And, and to lead into that, Warren, as it's described in the book, he kind of took some steps that I think maybe maybe had made him a bit of a target because didn't he try to contact his mother? Oh, yeah. And actually got through to her? Oh, yeah. No, they were told um, from that night not to talk about this among themselves, certainly not to anybody else on base or off base. And the next day, the next morning before the debriefing, um, Larry went to a base payphone, and we have two witnesses to this call. Uh, another security cop named Greg Batram was with Larry, and Larry, who's very close to his mom, who uh, still lives in upstate New York, he simply um, called her, collect, in the States, and started to tell her about this, completely in violation of his orders. But that's, that's Larry. I mean, he put right. the truth ahead of what he was told, repeatedly violated his orders on this um, and um, caught a certain amount of hell for it, became a person of interest for the NSA. And, um, no, he, uh, he certainly put himself in harm's way allegorically and actually because of uh, his unwillingness to um, toe the line and be cowed and... Um, you know, from an Air Force point of view or military point of view, um, you could certainly criticize him. Uh, from, I think, a, uh, a human point of view and a, a very noble, principle-driven point of view, he's somebody to be admired and respected. Right. Yeah, he definitely has come forward and with a lot of risk to himself. About the the quote unquote debriefing. Yeah. Now it seems that there were two stages of this. And let me ask you a controversial question. Sure. Um, in the book, I'm about. I told you earlier about like 120 pages left in this book, but I have read the part where he does. Of course, that's at the beginning of the book where he talks about going into this underground base and seeing aliens or, or seeing an alien down there. Now, do you think that this was part of this debriefing process, or were they, did they dose him up with some kind of, and these other guys up with some kind of drug to disorient them? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think different men went through different things. In Larry's case, after okay. the official debriefing, which involved uh, men of equivalent rank who uh, were brought ordered to come to the law enforcement uh, building. And the debriefing that they got, the official one, was not handled by the Air Force. Uh, it was led by one of three men uh, who was uh, a naval commander in uniform. The other two men were in suits. They were with, as far as I'm concerned, um, a field arm of the NSA. And 
they were told, among other things, that what they had been involved in last night and the night before, what they had observed, did represent uh, advanced intelligence, advanced technology from parts unknown, that this was the number one secret, that it was hoped at some point in the future it could be made public, but not now, and they were sworn to secrecy on it, and they should do all they could to get back to their lives. They were shown uh, an intriguing series of film clips that <clears throat> some were probably real, some may have been, you know, manufactured, we don't know, but after the film was over, they were allowed to leave without having any questions really answered. And when Larry got back to his dormitory, there he got a call saying that he should be out in front, I believe it was at 8 that evening, to be picked up by two guys to continue the debriefing. And it was at that point that he was chemically subdued with an aerosol sprayed in his face, <laughs> thrown in the back of the vehicle, and aware, although immobilized to a great degree, that he was moving, taken out of the car, brought into uh, an inside, and then was moving. Um, he remembers the pressure in his ears changing in the same manner that you would experience in uh, an aircraft landing. I have asked for years and started early on to speak with medical and mental health professionals to find out if you can absolutely recreate that as a physiological memory as opposed to, you know, a, a, an intellectual memory, so to say. And um, I am convinced that there is a secured facility of some sort underneath RAF bent waters, maybe a very appreciable size. I don't believe that there are humans and non-humans manning it. I think right. that may be true in some places, ways, I don't know. For me, well, you've got the two bases there. You got Woodbridge and Bentwater. Yeah. So I guess the idea is, is that this tunnel system uh, links the two bases. Well, I think that's that's yeah. That, that there's very little doubt about that among those who have really studied the situation. But yeah. um, I think that there was an intention of making um, these young men believe that they were in the presence of non-human beings. And, um, you know, the scenario we can only make educated guesses about, um, the memories that um, the men have of these episodes, we're all aware that some of the memories may be implanted <clears throat> and mixed with actual memories. In um, many cases, um, very responsible carefully applied regressive hypnosis can bring forth the real memories. And as you'll read in Left at East Gate, Larry ultimately does undergo hypnotic regression um, years after the fact with Bud Hopkins that I witnessed. And in all the years I knew Larry at that point, it was about seven years actively, although we had met two years before that, three years before that, um, I no, actually four years um, I had never and I've never since um, been in his presence when he was 19 years old I don't know how else to say it yeah. but he was under and he relived it 
and progressed to that point, right? Yeah, it, it was profoundly moving to me. And um, Bud was as good as they get at these things, brilliantly sensitive. Well, I can't help but being being reminded of MK Ultra. Yes, in all this, you know, in, in the the CIA program. Right. I mean, do you think that there's possibility the CIA was involved in some of this? I don't. I think it was the National Security Agency, not the Central Intelligence uh, Agency, that had an involvement in this, as well as aspects of Air Force intelligence to a degree. But um, there are parallels, absolutely. Um, This is some dark stuff that really was pioneered by the the communist Chinese during the Korean conflict. And... Uh, brilliantly brought to life in a fictional sense in the phenomenally powerful uh, novel and the film and the remade film of The Manchurian Candidate. Um, This was not that, but I I think there are parallels that can be drawn, yes. I watched, it's funny, because I watched a documentary not too long ago called Mirage Men. Oh, yes. On Netflix. Friends of mine wrote it, yes. And, and, and this is one of the most fascinating documentaries. It basically, it has to do with the misinformation or disinformation. Yeah. Uh, and it focuses specifically on uh, a guy named Richard Doty. Yep. And he was in the Air I'm sure you're familiar with all this, but he was in the Air Force. And he was just basically giving out disinformation on UFOs and tried to re- deflect from top secret programs such as they were flying drones in the 1980s but nobody yeah. knew knew what they were yeah. so he would be there to deflect it and he even uh, pulled some stuff on Linda Bolton Howe where he was talking about how uh, the, the aliens designed mankind and that's something that is in Larry Warren's testimony too yes. that they that they that these they told these guys in this debriefing so much so that Warren even says that there was a, a guy that was real religious that apparently killed himself because of this. That's correct. And, and, and Richard Doty himself claims, and it's and it's kind of hard because the, the documentary is set up to where you don't know who's really telling you the truth. Mm. And I thought it was very clever in that yes, way. I agree. But, but you, do, you don't know what he's... T- but he's saying the same thing. Like, he was taken somewhere. He was shown this these films. He was told... This same thing about the aliens uh, genetically manipulating man and all this kind yeah. of stuff. It's like the it's like the two kind of fit together. Yeah, I think there are scenarios in place uh, within the intelligence community that are um, ready to be deployed when necessary to disinform, to yeah. take attention away, to be uh, kind of the intelligence equivalent of you know, Donald Trump or Kim Kardashian, uh, look over here, folks. And, um, you know, there are people that now feel that the intelligences behind the entire Rendlesham Forest incident were time travelers from our future. Why do they feel this? Because one of the witnesses involved is convinced that he was selected by these time travelers to be given a message to the people of the future at a future point. And um, there are now people that this is what they believe, this is what they follow. What do we have to back it up? Well, the fact that this man said that they told him. Uh, For me, it's a very useful way 
to take attention away from, how shall I say, the less exotic or sexy or, um, uh, you know, tabloidish. Right. There's, there's hard scientific evidence. There are extremely credible witnesses that um, are not getting the attention that they should because this pot has been stirred and re-stirred to um, keep it murky. And it's one of the reasons why I felt compelled to write the most recent book that I did because of uh, this coming to a head this past summer and um, the disinformation overload just being infuriating to me, knowing a certain amount of factual material, having been involved in this case investigation for 28 years, and felt that other people should know it as well. Uh, but Is yeah, this the I, guy that you're talking about that got the like binary code yes, message? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I am talking about. That's exactly what I was just going to ask about. Yeah. Is a uh, well, what, what's that guy's name? I, I know that you're trying to. Yeah, that's um, his name out there, but... is uh, Jim Peniston. He was okay. a, uh, a a sergeant uh, at the time of the events, and whether or not Jim sincerely believes this, or whether or not he questions it in himself but still puts it forward or whether or not you know I don't know I've talked to Jim about it but he has refused to talk to me about it for years anybody that even remotely questions this the iron door swings closed for good uh, he was one of, was he one of the guys that was taken down to the to, to do this this the the experiments tech. on yeah. yeah well first I don't think the euphemism of being experimented on is appropriate, and not to the best of my knowledge, although in the book that was published okay. last year that uh, I have problems with, uh, that Jim and John and uh, the better-known uh, UFO uh, personality, researcher, writer, uh, Nick Pope, uh, a retired official with the British Ministry of Defense, wrote called Encounter in the Rendlesham Forest, there are some particularly poignant points, uh, parts of it, and one where Jim says, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, that he was debriefed, for lack of a better term, at least 14 times that he remembers. And on a number wow. of those occasions, he was given injections. Um, again, a lot of people immediately think sodium pentothal, because it's had such a long history in fiction, and it's one of the only drugs known in popular culture for right. uh, uh, behavior modification. But sodium pentothal reduces your resistance to telling the truth. Uh, if anything, if it was a sodium-based injection, it probably was sodium amethol, which um, makes it easier to program you as such. Um, what it was, I have no idea. Uh, but Jim and John have been through their own hells on this as well. And although I, I agree, I disagree profoundly um, with Jim Penniston's uh, repeatedly expressed and passionately held belief, at least publicly, that it was time travelers from our future and that he was the person they contacted to give a message to the people of Earth in the future, uh, my heart goes out to the guy because what he and these other men were put through shouldn't happen to a dog. 
Right. Exactly. It, you know, I want to ask you too, though. Yeah. It's like there, there, there is a lot of people that. Well, I, I guess you have sides that have been taken on this. You have Halt and his side, and then they don't really like. For some reason, they don't really like, or they don't agree with what Larry Warren has said. What? Why is there so much of this from these guys to discredit Warren? Well, for starters, and as you learn as you continue to read the book, in by 1982, Larry had left the service six months after the events with a fully honorable discharge, but with a massive case of post-traumatic stress, uh, rage issues, um, socializing issues, um, people that knew him all his life hardly knew the guy when he returned. He knew he had to talk to somebody. He knew he had to get this out there. And um, by early 1983, he had been introduced to uh, a man named Larry Fawcett. Um, in the 80s, uh, 90s, Larry was a Larry Fawcett was a fair, fairly well-known UFO investigator, but he was also a police lieutenant in Coventry, Connecticut, and fully professional interviewer. And he and his writing partner, Barry Greenwood, they were working on a book that came out in 84 called Clear Intent, which was probably the first actual book in this country devoted to the idea of the UFO cover-up. And it all culminated in Larry Warren's um, statements uh, and accounts about Rendlesham, something that had never been encountered as such in... um, UFO studies, and with the information that Warren gave to Fawcett and Greenwood, they worked with um, an organization at the time called Citizens Against UFO Secrecy Cause, and I'm trying to remember the name of the FOIA specialist, um, Bob, well, it's in the book. Um, They put together a Freedom of Information Act action, and by June of 83, it had resulted in the release of a single-page document, um, namely the report that Charles Halt had been compelled to write three weeks after the fact. It um, minimized the events, reduced their significance to a degree, compressed the three days into two, but there it was, and it's quite powerful for what it is, an authentic report on Air Force letterhead signed by the deputy base commander and... That made its way to England, where um, a colleague of Larry Fawcett's um, made an unwise decision, shared it with a colleague who then turned around and sold it to the News of the World, the largest tabloid in the world. And the story broke in October of 83 in that huge newspaper um, with Charles Halt's name front and center and his document. At the time of these events... Mr. Halt, now retired, was a lieutenant colonel who was already due for promotion. He received that promotion to full colonel within a week or so of the events, but for the rest of his military career. And he served with distinction. As far as I know, no black marks on his record at all. Uh, He was in Vietnam, um, Korea, I believe. Uh, He served for over 20 years, but he never advanced beyond that in rank. And I have had more Air Force serving personnel, retired, former 
tell me that from their point of view, based on his record and his service to his country, he certainly should have been brigadier general by the time he left. It really hurt his military career. It hurt his personal life. Uh, he became the subject of a certain amount of ridicule in and out of the military. And how can you not hold that against the person, the one person responsible for getting that out? Um, the new book that I've written, in fact, deals with this more than 30-year history of Mr. Halt's attacks on Larry Warren's credibility, believability, sanity, character, um, and again, it all came to a head this summer in England when he unloaded the most outrageous series of untruths imaginable uh, about my co-author. And that was it for me. I felt this really had to be addressed in great detail. But that certainly is one reason. Another is that Halt was nothing if not military. And when these events happened, you know, Larry was um, serving the Air Force with honor. Um, up until these events, but after them, and after he had been through what he was put through and learned about what other men had been put through, friends and other men on base, um, that was it for him, and he broke all the rules, and that is another thing that I think earned Charles Holt's enmity as well. The, Doesn't Holt and some others even go so far as to say that Warren wasn't even there? Oh, yeah. For Which many years, and he's disproven. I mean, that's yeah. And in fact, um, you will see in reading Left at East Gate, and it's underscored in Halton Woodbridge, published last week, um, that Charles Hall knew absolutely that Larry was serving in that capacity at that time. Because we, the one time he agreed to meet with us, which was in Washington, D.C., um, <laughs> across the street from the Pentagon in a uh, food court in the Pentagon City shopping mall, um, we showed him the paperwork that proved it. And he still has maintained on and off over the intervening 23 years that Warren was not there, couldn't have been deployed at that time, wasn't on duty, didn't have his PRP, personal recognizance pledge, etc. Um, and then there's the other factor that many of us who study this carefully and have uh, more familiarity than most with the dynamics of, of this saga, that there has probably been pressure on Mr. Halt for many years to right. put Larry out of the picture. Um, Warren is the ultimate... <clears throat> problem or, you know, in terms of being the one who has caused the most embarrassment, who blew the whole thing open, whose story um, was so uh, problematic, not to mention the fact that he was the one, not one of the people, but the person that exposed this nuclear treaty violation. Um, there's all kinds of rational reasons for somebody in Mr. Halt's position to want to bring this guy down. And it's yeah. been going on for more than 30 years. And um, I, I think I remember in Jim's story that uh, he reached out to touch a, a pyramid-shaped craft that was hovering above the ground. Is that is that story or is that description congruent with the other um, people that were actually there? 
Well, um, uh, again, um, John Burroughs was there, um, but John has no memory of it. Although um, I, 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 of course, have no way of knowing. Uh, I, I think Jim is probably sincere in his memory of touching, and this was uh, on the first night, going up to this machine and touching one of the symbols within this line of symbols and his account has been that when he touched it uh, a binary code and you know if you're a computer person you know that from the get go I am not a computer person and we had a small conference in Woodbridge England the closest town to where these events happened to mark the 30th anniversary five years ago in December And it was at that time that Jim came forward and told the world about this event, about touching it and having the binary code downloaded into his head. But in fact, he had been talking about it to people since 1994, uh, apparently, so it was not a secret that he kept for 30-odd years. And again, by his account, in his book, he uh, asks the rhetorical question, how could I, 24 hours later, sitting in my room, copy out these thousands of ones and zeros onto 16 pages of loose-leaf paper in my small field notebook, get all of them in the right order. Well, how indeed, you know, um, I don't mean to be disrespectful here, but how indeed. Um, My feeling is that Jim was not contacted by interdimensionals or time travelers or anybody else but that he was programmed to believe that this was the case and it fascinates me how what I consider a fairly um, realistic premise has been completely rejected by the true believers who you know let's face it the whole field of UFO studies is to put it mildly unregulated I mean I'm kind of a dinosaur in a way in that I am a very plodding, three-dimensional, investigative writer. Um, Bud, again, who was also a wonderfully trained and self-trained investigative writer, um, you, you work with what you have. I don't get channeled messages from Martians, or I don't have a contact <laughs> within the NSA. And, oh, I, I know people that, you know, that is, that's proof for them. Um, my uh, another extraordinary mentor had a huge impact on me is a a great great guy tough as nails good man named Pete Mazzola Pete was a, a brilliant UFO investigator and also a a no nonsense New York City police detective who taught me many years ago to investigate this phenomena in the way that law enforcement investigates the things that they investigate now that may seem arcane or um, naive or vibrating at a pretty low density to some folks who <laughs> come at this subject in a in a in a, in a, a lighter than air manner or and who am I to say what is or isn't true here but um, yeah uh, I it's very frustrating for me and at the same time you do this work long enough and you don't have to be a mental health professional have compassion for people and know that so many people want so much to believe in something 
transcendent about this phenomena, and there may well be a lot of it that is. I, I've come to believe, and I say believe, because I cannot prove it in any way, uh, sure. to believe, feel, and think that we're not dealing with another intelligence here. We're dealing with a, a panoply, a, a, a number of other intelligences that come and go, interdimensional, inter, you know, uh, uh, coming from different solar systems or galaxies or wherever, um, by technology that we can only imagine in some degrees, in some cases we can imagine it, others we probably can't, but that they may well represent in terms of their motives and their reasons for coming and going from our beautiful little planet here that we have been doing such a bad job of taking care of. Um, they may have the full spectrum of uh, feelings, thoughts, beliefs, commitments, and goals that we have from the benign and kind and enlightened to the truly pathological. Again, we do not know what we are dealing with here, and anybody that tells you that they know what we are dealing with here is somebody I would take with a grain of salt. I'm a big proponent, Peter, of the idea that that it's not a physical phenomenon, that it's more of a... I guess for lack of a better term, or like a, a spiritual phenomenon, or lack of a better term, an interdimensional phenomenon. And it seems like those elements are there in this case, uh, much more so than after I've read your book. Uh, it, it, the the Rendlesham Forest area was, you know, there were all these rumors about druids being in the woods. They said it was a huge witchcraft area. Uh, there were the said that even like uh, you guys met. Uh, uh, an airman there on the base then and and you have a transcript of that recording mm -hmm. where they uh, him and Larry Warren are talking about the the woman with no face that would be seen or the ghosts that would be seen in the area but what do you think is the the link there between the sightings that happened and and you had an ex a sighting yourself when you went there that's the right. first time that's right um number 1 um I think, again, we're dealing with overlapping phenomena. And for reasons, again, we can only make educated guesses about, there are areas on our planet that historically have higher and sometimes extremely higher uh, incidence of confirmed anomalous activity, confirmed UFO sightings or um, events, than other areas. Um, I live in New York State, and there's a little tiny town called Pinebush, about two hours drive north of New York City, that happens to have the highest uh, confirmed incidence statistically of UFO sightings, UFO-related events of anywhere that I'm aware of in the Northeast. In, right. in the UK, there's a small town in Scotland called Bonniebridge, uh, where a good friend of mine is tonight for um, an event um, that also has this. In Suffolk, England, the area in and around the Rendlesham Forest, first, as you've noted, is steeped in legend and lore and myth and tradition and ghost stories and paranormal anomalies, as well as military test areas 
um, NSA listening posts, etc. Um, I, I think you may be right, and there are other things going on as well. As you'll learn as you continue um, in the book, and it's underscored in, in the new book, the soil analysis of the very specific spot in the farmer's field called Capel Green, which you're somewhat familiar with now, compared to control samples taken from further out in the field, is jaw-dropping in terms of what happened to the soil right there compared with soil, you know, 10, 50, 300 feet away. It was transformed, and no mind control, no ethereal uh, miasma um, or a Jacques Vallée kind of unconsciousness uh, uh, aspect to it can account for that. Again, I, I kind of feel sometimes I'm the equivalent of a Zen beginner in this. I, I've been obsessed with the subject to one degree or another for 40 years of my life. And at this point, you know, a lot of people think of me as um, knowledgeable or something of an authority. Yeah, I, in talking about Rendlesham or other cases I've investigated or the phenomena in general, I, I, I probably know more than the next person over. But I, the main thing I know is how little I know. And the more I learn, the more I realize that there's so much deception that seems to be caught up in this on their part as well as on our part. Um, and so the world at large continues to sleepwalk its way through this phenomena and its implications, while a small core of us who have either been affected by it or um, studied the quality material long enough to realize this is real. Um, and what it represents is potentially so destabilizing for the power structures of the world and those individuals in power that there isn't any wonder why it has been the most highly classified subject since just after World War II among all first world governments. Uh, did you already talk about the properties of the soil? Um, not not to you guys, but I'll be happy to quickly go through it. Um, essentially, when Larry and I first went out to that field, it was eight years and two months after he had been involved in the event in that field. He had never returned. He had tried to return in 85. It was too muddy. He, he had gone back there with his first wife, and he never made it out. So in February of 88, bearing in mind that the events happened in December of 80, we made our way out there. And as you might imagine, that walk out to that field was pretty intense. And as we got closer and closer, he got pretty tightly wound and quiet. I was recording everything over those years, um, and it was a very good tool to, of course, use for transcripts or to create treatments as we move forward. I'm sure I must have recorded 150, 200 hours over those nine years of, of conversations and events as they were happening. But as the forest broke away and we looked out into the field for the first time, his right arm shot out like involuntarily 
and he it's all on tape, but he just said it sat right there. And then it's quiet. Neither one of us say a word, and Larry follows up by saying, of course, that's a coincidence that the area where it sat, that precise area is discolored. It's kind of a, a different shade of soil in an elliptical form. And because I had trained myself the way I had, my reaction wasn't, oh my God, look, there's the spot where the flying saucer sat. It's like eight years, two months later. Give me a break. Yeah, it was, yeah, right. That is a coincidence. And there are things that can explain those kinds of coincidences. For example, um, it was a plowed field in winter. It was an overcast day. We didn't know whether we were looking at a flat area, convex, concave. It could have been the way the light caught the clods of earth. Uh, lightning could have hit it a year before. Uh, a load of nitrate fertilizer could have been dumped there and not graded out. But we kept returning to the area, and ultimately, I, I was shooting 35-millimeter film, and I had a bunch of those little plastic, you know, cylindrical containers that some of your older listeners may remember. Um, <laughs> and I, I was also using micro-cassette recording, and I, so I had these tiny little labels and these tiny little containers, and I, I labeled them, you know, edge, center, control. And I, I took about half a dozen samples, and it did look different, and it did feel different. And we did a basic experiment when we returned to our bed and breakfast of trying to get um, the affected sample to become mud. The, the regular field soil did in a second, but it wouldn't. I, I stirred it, I mixed it, I worked it with the back of the spoon, and it either floated on top like dust or sank in clumps. And I went back, oh, about a year and three months later in June of 90, and this time it was mind-blowing. Nine and a half years later, that exact spot is now a bright green oval sitting in an absolutely yellow field, gone to hay with some flashes of red where there were wild poppies. Um, That's weird. And I went back the year after, this time after consulting a laboratory, and they sent me either three, I think four, very heavy brown plastic two-quart containers to draw samples from and told me how to do it. So the samples were analyzed. And among other things, what they told us was, yes, the soil looked different. That's not the biggest deal in a farmer's field. However... Under a scanning electron microscope, it's obviously completely different than the control samples in, to its core. Also, the pH had been blown from the soil. You couldn't get it. It was like water off a duck's back, and I'm not speaking allegorically. Water just ran off of it. Even in the laboratory, they had a very difficult time getting it to even approximate mud when mixed with water. Um, they found that in seed germination tests where they grow the same seed in the control sample and the affected sample. Control sample, no problem. Everything normal. Rate of growth normal. In the affected sample, it took much longer to grow. And in the words of our technician, um, only mutant strains of the plants emerged. Now, yeah. so what I was seeing nine and a half years later was the result of the slow growth. That spot was green nine and a half years later, where the rest of the field had already gone to hay. We, right. we then learned that there were flecks of iron in the soil, maybe as big as a piece of sand, and normal for that part of England. It's the way it is. Soil is different in different areas. 
Um, in the affected sample, there was more than four times the amount of metallic particles as in the control samples. And when I asked um, our, our chemist what he made of this, he said he could only make one deduction, which was that an electromagnetic force so powerful had sat on that spot that it had caused these tiny little grains to work their way through soil to come into this one area, which was pretty mind-blowing also. Um, finally, this all occurred five or six miles from the North Sea. So you'd expect to have a, a component of sand in the soil. Control sample, no problem. In the affected sample, there was no sand at all. It That's had strange. melted. It had melted. It was in an interim form of glass called silica. That was something they were also unable to reproduce in the laboratory. Now, again, um, a gentle anomalous phenomena or a psyop does not melt sand into glass, among other things. Right. There's a physical effect there. Yeah. And, and, and also, didn't Larry have a, a physical effects on him? Oh, yeah. I believe that he, like, he, at one point his back started to bleed. He, Larry had uh, a number of the men have had what we will call anomalous physical problems, um, things that make no sense or that should never have affected them had they not been through something beyond extraordinary. In Larry's case, the two major physiological um, problems for him were that when the craft appeared, and you remember, Adam, it appeared with an incredibly bright flash of light Larry had described it to me as like a wall of flash bulbs going off. And, you know, a lot of people don't know what it's like looking at a flash bulb close up when it goes off. You are temporarily blinded. It can take five seconds, you know, four seconds, three, for your vision to start to really return. We have the Air Force medical records documenting the fact that it caused burns to his retinas. Optical retinal burn exposure was the way it was written up in the Air Force medical report. Um, And he has had problems with his eyes as a result of that. The other thing that you alluded to, at least as creepy if not more so, was by the mid-80s, maybe even earlier, 84, 85, he would have episodes where he would simply start bleeding through the pores of his skin. And his first wife, Cindy, was a physical therapist at a hospital in Connecticut. And, you know, it at one point when it happened, that was it. And they went right to the emergency room. And he was examined by a number of doctors who consulted and then came back. The first question they asked him was, was he in Vietnam? And he said, do the math. I was like nine years old. Um, so he was not. And the second question, were you ever exposed to an unshielded nuclear radiation source? Uh, I may have been. What were the circumstances? I can't tell you. Um, but that was very frightening as well. And those hospital records are reproduced in Left at Eastgate as well as in uh, the new book. Let me ask you about his, because even before this happened, He had had alien abduction experiences himself. Not alien abduction experiences, but contact experiences for sure. 
Um, I absolutely prefer the term contact experience because I think that it is more inclusive. I've actually come to really dislike the term alien abduction. Well, um, if it happened to you, you'd probably dislike it even more. But it, it's <laughs> yeah. very hyper-specific. Abduction means just that. You are taken and returned. But you are taken. And this is something that has followed more people than you'd want to believe throughout parts of their lives. Uh, but yes, Larry had experiences when he was younger, also had several profound experiences with his mother. One of the things that, that bound them very closely on this issue, and Joanne has always been 110% behind her son on this because she knows it's real as well. Uh, I remember years ago that Bud did an extensive interview with her, uh, and this is a tough, no-nonsense woman who you know doesn't exaggerate to support her son's notions or anything right. like that. But yes, he did have experiences when he was younger. And um, that is the way it is with some folks. Do you know Dr. David Jacobs? Yes, he's a good friend. What do you think of his work? I think it's incredibly disturbing and um, very courageous. And if I didn't know Dave for 30 years... And know a lot of people that he's worked with over the years and spent time with him in his home in the Philadelphia area and in New York and seen, well, um, to cut to the chase, um, uh, I think David's research gives us some of the most disturbing uh, visions of what partly is going on here uh, around what we'll call the hybrid phenomena that there has been a program, uh, an ongoing series of, um, well, that that there are beings that are part us and part them. Uh, I'm sure many of whom could never walk out into the world of human beings and not be regarded uh, as anything but a freak, because they, they would not look quite human, to put it mildly. But others who, yes probably Walk Among Us, and in fact, the title of Dave's new book is just that, Walking Among Us. Yeah. Um, we've got him coming on next month. Oh, great. And we, we've had him on before last year, but well, I, he's I, coming back. I think David Jacobs, and I'm going to say it right here because he's been attacked like crazy over the years also, um, I think he's got tremendous courage, he's a great intellect, he's one of the most decent people I've ever known. He doesn't like his findings at all, but these are his findings based on having worked with hundreds of people over the past three decades, quite a number of whom I have come to know and count as good friends and whom I would trust with my safety anytime. They're completely credible people who have no desire or interest or reason in the real world to want to make these claims unless they were true or unless they were convinced they were true. So um, I have, again, tremendous admiration, affection, respect for Dr. Jacobs and will always and only wish him only the best. I wanted to ask you, Peter. Yeah. Uh, one of the things besides UFOs and all this weirdness that I talk about is one of my greatest loves is uh, punk rock. Yay! And especially, <laughs> especially the New York City stuff. <laughs> I love it. Like Talking Heads, Television, Blondie, and all that. Yeah. 
But uh, I wanted to talk to you about your sister, yes. Helen Wills. That's right. And, uh, you know, who she was and, 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 and what she did. And also, you know, she was an experiencer herself. You bet. Um, Helen was the sister that I had my childhood siding with, who told me years later when we first discussed this, she was the very first person in the world that ever discussed the topic, the subject of being taken. And it had happened to her when she was young, um, on that day, among other times. And Helen, when we were growing up, was very quiet and bookish. I had thought up until the 60s exploded around us, and uh, we jumped in with uh, great abandon, um, that <laughs> she might become um, ooh, um, a marine biologist or something, loved nature, terrific in math and science, but then became a poet. And by the mid-70s, was living um, in the East Village at a time when I had my painting loft down in Chinatown, a mile or two below her. And um, poor as a church mouse, bohemian, um, but quite brilliant in many respects. She did have a degree in English literature. She was a graduate of the French Fashion Institute in New York City, a, a absolutely remarkable seamstress and clothing designer, and was making a bit of a living doing one-of-a-kind leather outfits for rockers. Her boyfriend at the time, who's still a dear friend of mine, we lost Helen um, in January of 2000, uh, is a great guy named Albert Bouchard, who was the drummer for the Blue Oyster Cult. This was... Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know who he is. As, mm -hmm. as, as they were breaking um, as a, a major group. And um, Albert took several of Helen's poems and put them to music, they got on um, the BOC's album that was coming out. The album went gold. It went platinum. My sister, for the first time, had a regular income in terms of royalties from Sony, which was handling... Uh, was that Agents of Fortune? Yeah, yes, it was. Yes, it okay. was. And um, that was life-changing for her. And it was literally within months of the whole punk movement breaking in the UK and in lower Manhattan. And as it broke... Helen became part of it. And, you know, we're, we were very close in age, but for me, the music I grew up with and loved and still do to a great degree was Motown and soul and blues and, you know, real rock classics and heavy metal to a degree. But <laughs> the whole punk thing, I didn't get it. I simply didn't get it. But I really, really? wasn't trying to. You know, yeah. it's those moments where you say, my God, I sound like my parents. You know, how can you listen to that stuff? <laughs> and she started dragging me to this little hole-in-the-wall club with a fire limit of, I think, 175 people called CBGBs. I started going yeah. there with Helen in, the early, in early 1976 when her first band was starting to play. And she was opening up for groups I had never heard of, like... Um, this bunch of guys with straight faces from Queens called the Ramones and this guy named Iggy and Patty Smith. I knew from the late sixties because she had been, um, uh, the girlfriend when I met her of Alan Lanier, the brilliant original keyboard player for the BOC. Um, well, you knew Patty Smith. Oh, wow. well, um, I, I, Helen and I were always in kind of awe of her. Even yeah. when we'd be hanging out together, I just, I'm not usually tongue-tied, but even when before she recorded, they, Patty had a charisma, a presence, 
I, I remember about, oh God, probably about the late 70s, maybe Horses had just come out, her first mm-hmm. album, which is absolutely brilliant, and which oh, I love it. Yeah. CBGB's closed, by the way, with three legendary shows on the last three nights. I was there the second to last night uh, to hear my friends, Dictators, and um, the group that spelled its name S-I-C-F uh, asterisk. K.S., dear friends of ours who still perform occasionally. Um, But the last show at CB's was Patty, by herself, doing Horses. The album, in the order it was recorded, that was a show I would have loved to have heard. But I can say with great pride, um, I, I did take some wonderful portraits of Patty back then, and I painted her apartment on Lexington Avenue. And did a very oh, really? good job of it. Yes, I'm, that's wow. looms large in my legend. I know, <laughs> but um, it was once I got it, I was hooked. Um, what I hadn't gotten at first was, you know, I got the cliche of, you know, we're angry at everything and we're loud and we're in your face. What <laughs> I needed to see was these acts, which were so over the top, really had wonderful music and lyrics, but the performances were the equivalent of kind of interstellar vaudeville. They were, one act was more outrageous than the next overall, but then you get like the talking heads who are kind of art rock and um, Richard Hell and the Voidoids and the Dead Kennedys and... um, I, I envy uh, you so much right now, Peter. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I, I, well, I, all I can say is now I realize how lucky I was. I saw all these groups and individual performers repeatedly with less than 200 people in these smoke-packed clubs, many of us pretty drugged out of our minds at the time. And, you know, of course, this was pre-smoking laws. So, you know, I it was... An, my my sister was among the most outrageous of them all. Uh, her act was absolutely over the top. Once she really got her performing legs together, her act was electrifying. And the thing about Helen is, of all of the major talents at that time, and I include Debbie and Patty, and uh, Debbie Harry, one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life, who actually came to, I think, the second UFO talk I ever gave in about 1977. She and Chris Stein sat in the first row smiling at me. And, I'm, you know, for for those people, I was Helen Wheel's brother. Um, Wonderful groups like the Dictators, who some of them are still dear friends of mine, Um, other ones who I I haven't seen in many years. Uh, These were great performing artists who were creating a new genre. And had I not had Helen as my sister, I would have missed it completely. Absolutely completely. And um, two years ago, I gave a talk in Cleveland. My brother-in-law was free at the time. He's a retired physician now. And he said, well, let me go with you. We'll drive out there together. And let's go a day early and you know spend the day at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which we did and had a great time. Um, and there is the famous awning from CBGB's that I used to stand under occasionally smoking the odd joint. And um, uh, there it is like this archetype 
in you know the Museum of Modern Art on this clean wall. But damn, isn't culture funny the way it works? But wow. yeah, Helen was also extremely outspoken um, about her experiences. Got in people's face about it regularly if they looked at her cross-eyed on it. She felt like I do that she was an educator in this kind of stuff. She made a little bit of recording history also in that she did an EP, an extended play uh, album, probably about 1978 or so, um, which we, you know, you'd get the the sleeves, the actual pressings, the, um, the album covers, and you'd assemble them. You'd have kind of an assembly party, and you'd send them out through the mail or sell them at shows. And what we, Helen insisted on doing, was having me reproduce some famous UFO documents and put them in there with a note from her that this is serious, this is real, educate yourself, UFOs are real, the government covers it up, and this is going back almost, well, you know, back to the punk era. So, 1978. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. She was remarkable. Wasn't she like a, a female bodybuilder, too? She was. Um, her act became so physical that she started to injure herself. I mean, this is way before people would jump into mosh pits, and yeah. the riser at CBGB's was, I don't know, maybe two feet. But Helen, um, it sort of started with one song that she wrote that was inspired by um, the Dead Kennedys' famous, their one, uh, the medley of their hit, within a very small circle, of um, uh, two down and one to go. Um, good taste was not a, a consideration in uh, punk. And, well, that's, what I, that's why I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and Helen wrote a song called, about the Kennedy assassination called Grey Matter on the Streets of Dallas. And wow. <laughs> before the show, we would sit in a dressing room, and it was also, New York was different then. You could go into a sleazy store on West 42nd Street and buy a twenty two caliber blank gun and a box of, you know, twenty two caliber blanks for, you know, $7, $10. And I had bought her about half a dozen guns, which we would carefully load, and she'd stick in her waistband. And when the band would get to it solo, Helen would go into a two-handed stance, and people would start screaming, me, Helen, me, Helen, and she'd start killing everybody in the audience. <laughs> and as she would shoot them, they would fall over. Sometimes the tables would go over. When she'd finish the song, there'd be dozens of people on the floor, and she would dive out into the audience. And sometimes she'd get caught, and sometimes she wouldn't. And she hurt herself a number of times um, and started to take better care of herself. But that led to an interest in really taking good care of herself and I mean, my sister was four foot eleven, but you didn't want to mess with her. Um, wow. You know, I mean, she was like soft inside, but she projected a, a very "don't blank with me" attitude, and <laughs> yeah, um, right. and she started to train, and she became a ranking uh, female bodybuilder in her weight class for quite a number of years. And in the years before she died, I mean, she was still doing music. She was working with um, a new band, but she was also working at a health club as a personal trainer. And, um, yes, a, a, a true Renaissance woman in many respects. But those those bodybuilding pictures can be kind of, uh, uh, you do a triple take because she really worked at it. If you don't mind me asking, Peter, how, how, how did she pass away? 
Um, Helen had developed a condition in her vertebrae <clears throat> where the cartilage was starting to break down between certain vertebrae and nerve endings were connecting and causing her terrible pain. And she tried everything. She went to every doctor imaginable. She was on all kinds of painkillers until she just couldn't stand it anymore because they just made her feel, you know, like she was packed in plastic chips or something. Uh, she handled it homeopathically to the best degree she could. Actually, marijuana worked better than just about anything in terms of yeah. pain relief. But Please give it a thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but ultimately, she um, she was in so much pain that she felt she had to explore surgery, which concerned us, her family, and people who loved her very much. And the original descriptions of the surgery were barbaric, absolutely horrible, even including, well, we're going to have to go in the front and we're going to wreck your vocal cords so you can't sing and we're going to have to fuse all your vertebrae. But ultimately, um, she found a surgeon um, at a hospital in New York State who seemed to be about the best. Uh, my other sister, who was a nurse practitioner, um, not practicing now, and my brother-in-law, again, a physician, um, looked into it. And, you know, you hear stories about people whose relatives, loved ones, go into hospitals and die. Um, right. Oops, sorry, you know, we made a mistake or something. Um, the aftercare was pretty abysmal. And um, her condition deteriorated, and she died. The, um, the technical term was adult respiratory distress syndrome, where your respiratory system pretty much collapses, and the other systems start to go after it. But it really was uh, contributed to significantly by very poor aftercare. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, yeah. Peter. Thank you. We miss her. We were, uh, I'm sure you do. She sounds like she's quite a person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to actually, at the end of the show, uh, since I play a lot of punk rock at the end of the show, I'm going to be playing a song. So, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> at the end. So, right. uh, But we're almost out of time yeah. here. But uh, tell everybody where they can get uh, contact you, where they can get your books. Oh, sure. Um, and the books that you have out. Yeah, I'd be honored. Um, first, um, Left at Eastgate has been in constant print. Well, no, it's... Um, it, it will be in print forever, um, but you can order Left at Eastgate from Amazon. Um, if you want to get a, a signed copy from me, um, find me on Facebook. Um, in about a week, I will have a new website up and running. Uh, PeterRobbinsNY.com, I think, is going to be the URL. Um, as far as the other two books... The book that I published last year, Deliberate Deception, A Case of Disinformation in the UFO Research Community, you can have that for free. It's a 450-page book right. um, with a huge database, uh, the, the largest raw database of Rendlesham-related information ever released by anyone at any time, by um, going to the website for a terrific free publication that you should all subscribe to. It's called Phenomena magazine. They're out of Manchester, England. And if you go to their website, you'll see a box that says Special Reports. Click on it, and you will find seven um, book icons. And download them in order, and you've got that book. My, oh, my newest book, which is called Halt, 
H-A-L-T, in Woodbridge, one word, um, is available on Amazon as a um, trade paper edition for fourteen ninety five, and I made sure that the um, uh, Kindle edition would be very economically priced. You can pick that up for less than $4 um, on Amazon. I hope that you will read the books, and I try to keep accessible. Um, I'm sometimes inundated by folks, um, but I will get back to you if humanly possible. If you're on Facebook, there are several Peter Robbins. I'm absolutely shocked that there are other ones in the world, but other smart <laughs> parents name their children the same thing. Uh, I'm the Peter Robbins listed in Ithaca, New York, although I live in the woods outside of Ithaca. And otherwise, um, um, yeah, in about a week at most, uh, start visit me on my new website. And guys, I've got to say, um, it's been a great show. I hope I haven't hogged too much of it, but um, no, not at all. I'm happy to come back anytime that it works for us. And absolutely, thank because the chance for me to mouth off. Absolutely, because we're gonna. We're, we, I have to have you on at least to talk about Wilhelm Reich, because that's yeah. a show in and in and of itself. That's a bunch of shows in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, another area of study that I am profoundly involved in for decades, and the most overused word I think in our language besides love is genius. And right. Wilhelm Reich really was a genius, and the most maligned and misunderstood scientific figure of the last millennium probably i'd be honored to do a show on that this is the orgone energy luke yeah, but, yeah. you guys just threw me off with the <laughs> accent all right well we're going to close out this segment peter but stay on the line for us yep. and guys we'll be right back on conspiracy normal what an emotional episode what what a roller coaster of that's right and What's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Help me out. It, it was an, an intensity. Yeah, it was an intensity. I, mean, I think we we covered a lot of ground there. We it was covered crucial. UFOs, everything from UFOs to punk rock in one in one episode. Right. It's it like it's like man, I really envy that guy, dude. Like you just walk in, the, you're just like, oh yeah. So, but he he appreciated it though. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like yeah, I saw some band, really crappy band called the Ramones way back then. What, what, what They're like CBGBs and. 1977, you know, they were bad, but he really appreciated it. You know, he see, he saw what, uh, yeah, what, what it was really all about. What, what kind of held me up? What can I, I kind of tripped on a little bit is that he said he listened to heavy metal, but, but then said all of that about punk. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, heavy metal for, I would say for Peter would probably be something like, you know, Black Sabbath or Led oh, Zeppelin right, or right. Deep Purple, that kind of stuff, but the, you know, but the fact like, you know, someone listens to that, but it wasn't Burzum or. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're all 90s man are the are the one what was the other one that was like uh it was just like screeching in the background oh, the mayhem yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like to you know, what did you call that well, you call that I'll, some kind of vulture core yeah vulture core all, all of the all of this generation of metalheads they, they like to apply core to all, all these uh sub-genres of music and they're obsessed with creating sub-genres so I, I like to make fun of them by, Luke on his soapbox by, <laughs> I like to make fun of them by calling uh, mayhem vulture core but but uh you know 
to to my surprise several years ago actually like looked up mayhem's lyrics and they were very beautiful and poetic <laughs> even <laughs> though it just sounded like like it, it, literally, yeah, it, it literally sounds like a bunch of vultures squawking. <laughs> there was the other one that was just crickets it was sounded like oh, crickets. oh that's you know that okay that's a joke band that's, that's not meant to take seriously he's talking about cemetery rapist <laughs> And, and it does. It sounds like a bunch of crickets chirping. <laughs> there was also the one joke, man, where they had the dog singing. They had the pit bull. Oh, uh, K-Ninus? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a series of pit bull growls it was and just, barks to metal. But <laughs> <laughs> it was the music. <laughs> it sounded like obituary plus dog barks. <laughs> That's why we love Luke on this show, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what are your thoughts on that, man? Oh, that was great. I know. You just kind of sit, thinking it in after our like disaster tonight. Oh like, man, yeah, I'm, I'm, hacked I'm, by I'm, the try, I'm still trying. I'm still trying not to think about that. I guess. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we love the NSA. Okay. We do. Rob, <laughs> Rob peed his pants a little bit. I did. <laughs> And I haven't had a chance to change it either. <laughs> you know, we had to rush over here so quickly, you know, and everything. But yeah, I really, really appreciated him coming on. It's a, it's an incredible book that that he wrote, Left at East Gate. I mean, it's like 18 years old by now. But uh, it's real, very well researched. You get Larry Warren's story. You get uh, Peter Robbins' kind of ghost writing and also putting in a lot of documentation uh, that shows that Larry Warren was there at Rendlesham. And uh, you seem to get uh, uh, perked up a little bit about the whole like binary code thing. Well, like, like, uh, yeah, you must have known a lot about you know, that. Uh, yeah, I, I did. Um, you know, I've, obviously, I don't read, but <laughs> <laughs> obviously, but uh, I, like I, I watched. I don't uh, read, dude. I watched two. I watched two doc, <laughs> two different documentaries where uh, where he was telling. You know, Jimmy was telling his story on in the whole situation, and um, I just. He's right, you know. I see the sensational stuff going on right there, right. and I, I like uh, the coordinates. The coordinates pointed ended up pointing to uh, a mythical island off the coast of Ireland. That yeah, I did some research. Remember yeah, it was like that? the island of High Brazil. Uh, High Brazil, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, yeah. I I don't. I never have really thought that. Uh, you know that all of that wasn't really credible or reliable information. But I, I mean, what's up with that? Why would that have anything to do with? Well, with this incident—that's such a strange connection there. I mean, well, well, like he, like he was saying too uh, during his interview. Uh, it also—I don't know if you remember because I know you've seen the same documentary I'm talking about. I Actually, I haven't seen it. Oh, really? No. Well, um, was it an ancient aliens thing? Ah, uh, it, it may have been on ancient aliens too. Like I said, I think I've seen two of them, but yeah. one of them I watched. I think was Rendlesham Forest. Uh, you know specifically. But uh, it, there was also some kind of positive message that he made a reference to. He didn't. He didn't say the whole message or anything. I don't remember what the message is, but right. it, it, it came with the message and coordinates. And then the coordinates pointed to where High Brazil uh, was mapped in the old cartographer maps from like uh, 1700s and stuff. Um, after the 1700s, High Brazil like no longer showed up on the map. Weird. Weird. Well, I mean, that's just strange. Weird. Wasn't um, I may I may have kind of zoned out or misunderstood. Peter kind of seemed to imply that he thought that was more of a um, 
maybe not brainwashed, but implanted sort of right. false flag yeah. type of thing. Yeah, right? implanted kind of memory. Yeah. In other words, to kind of deflect everybody from this event, but just like the, just yeah. like the weird, you implant these things in this guy's minds. Right. And then they go, and they may or may not go and start saying and, this kind of stuff. And but, another thing is, yeah. is we we know we know uh, in science that um, you that, that there's chemicals out there that you can introduce people to that will encourage Alzheimer's yeah. you know, at, a, at, a, at a very high uh, exposure rate and stuff like right. that, you know. So it, uh, I, I, I know things like that, and then you, you think, well, you know, they could, they could actually use that in their conditioning too. Yeah, and I think it's disturbing too that these guys were treated that the, like they were. I mean, they, they had this incident happen, and as if that wasn't probably stressful enough when you're, 19 20 years old and all of a sudden you're you know presented with this probably this alternate form of reality in a way with this what whatever that was that landed there whatever that was that was visiting there to have that on top of having your brain just kind of messed with to either a make you forget it or b make you just spread some weirdness right just just crazy in general Yeah. yeah yeah so very strange world we live in. I think we discovered that tonight. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it's getting late. Let's uh, let's call it a night. I know it's time almost time for Lukey's bedtime. No, if it ain't my bedtime, it's beer thirty. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been I've been over here looking at you Rob's know, beer, just, <laughs> just drooling. You know, Johnny from the Iron Show told me he he he, he told me he would. Uh, I had a favor that I asked him for, and he 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 said, "Well, you gotta you gotta give me Luke." <laughs> As a co-host, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm we need to rent Luke out. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty valuable. You know, I, I have a lot of people coming forward and trying to get me acting gigs and stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I don't know if I have we time. did. We did have an email. And this guy sent, sent an email, and I'm not going to read it, man. Just like, just, just really, just downing us and downing Luke in particular for being <laughs> ignorant and, and <laughs> about he, eugenics. He's, and, he's right. I didn't. I actually did not know that the eugenics movement targeted uh, racial minorities. I didn't know that. Oops. <laughs> I thought it was but a stupid good plan. Well, that's okay. You know? I thought it was a good plan until until I learned all that. So, <laughs> well, well, now you know. All right, guys. Thanks for listening in. And uh, join us next time on Conspiranormal! Moose.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.